On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of See Here is brought to you by a great entertainer, a great humanitarian, and my dearest, dearest friend for 25 years. Ladies and gentlemen, it's showtime. number 19 of the See Here podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne and we're all around the globe with this podcast. That's what I love. It's a global show. Uh, so in Seoul, in South Korea, we have Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy. And in Chicago, Illinois, we have Ms. Wendy Freeman. Hey, friends. Now, I'd like to say in Bath, in England... We have Mr. Bernard Stickwell, but unfortunately we don't because I think he fell asleep in the bath. But uh, never oh. mind, we'll be having him back uh, next month. But in his the absence of sticky, the absence we have no stick. No. So this time around, though, uh, in in the last minute, we've had someone who's agreed to stand in for Sticky, and we're very honoured. The co-host of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast and Gil and Frank's colossal obsessions, or should they be colossal obsessions, Mr. Frank <laughs> Santo Padre. Welcome to the See Here podcast, Frank. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen and Wendy. Good morning. Thanks hey, for having good morning. me. Good morning, Frank. Yeah, good morning. It's 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 nighttime at this end of the world and it's morning at the I, I just I never cease to be amazed doing these podcasts about this horrible international dateline, but we're all in for it. We're all ready to talk. And um, mm -hmm. this time around we're going to be discussing a film that is um, well, I think is near and dear to at least a couple of our hearts, and I'm hoping all the rest of our hearts. It's from uh, 1979, directed by Bob Fosse. The film is All That Jazz, and we've got a lot to say about this one. I don't know how we're going to compact it into one hour, but we'll do our best, at least give you some interesting stuff. But before we go talking about that, for those of you who are out there listening and wondering, who is Frank Santo Padre? Frank, tell us a little bit about the no creation. Uh, no, no pressure at all. Um, no. Well, uh, let's well, let's just sort of focus for a little bit on your and Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. So, uh, uh -huh. like, we've been fans like for you know quite a while. Tim put me onto it and put Wendy and and Bernie onto the show. Uh, so, just give us a bit of a brief rundown. How did it get started? And for the people who haven't actually listened to the show yet, what's it all about? What's it all about? That's a good question. Well, it's, it's, uh, it really is, uh, you use the word obsessions, which we worked into the uh, mini-episode. I mean, for lack of a better explanation, it is about our obsessions. And, and we're both obsessed with, with uh, old show business, and the more arcane and obscure, the better. You know, in fact, my, my friendship with Gilbert was really founded on that. 
it, it, he's a very odd guy socially. And <clears throat> when we met and the couple of times we worked together back in the 90s, really that was my way into him, my way into his personality, was to just start, you know, I'm going to drop character actor names, you know, like Monty Markham or Michael J. <laughs> Pollard. Right. You know, that, that was the way that we could talk. It was, it was kind of our, uh, our common language. So you found that you'd worked with a lot of the same people? That you, so it's, it's made it uh, a lot easier for you to get uh, the, the, the guest names that you've had on the show. And you've had people like you know, Henry Winkler and Paul Schaefer and Drew yeah. Friedman. So you, knew, you both knew all these people? We loved the same kind of things. I mean, he, he certainly he had his little group. I mean, Drew, Drew and Paul came from my circle. But he also, you know, he pen, he's friends with Penn Jillette and Weird Al. So we, uh, it was a little bit of a coming together of both of our, our social circles. But also, um, the show grew out of uh, phone calls. You know, Gilbert's, uh, Gilbert's still on the road. He probably spends about 30, 35 weeks on the road. He doesn't drive, so he winds up in these little ho- in these hotels in these, in these podunk towns. And even in bigger towns like, like Toronto, you know, or Denver. He doesn't have much to do when he gets there. So he would call me from the hotel room and we would just kind of obsess he'd call me up and he'd say i got a question about larry hagman (laughs) (laughs) who doesn't who doesn't and i would drop what i was doing and you know take the call i mean he he was a comic gilbert was a favorite comic of mine and a comic that that i would go out of my way to see i spent many many hours in the old days watching him in, in Caroline's and other clubs, and, and I'd approach him after the show. Of course, he, you know, I'd, he's one of those guys where, and this is the thing with comedians, they tend to be so self-absorbed that you have to meet them 20 and 30 times before, and I love this about him, before they'll actually remember your name. <laughs> We'd even worked together on television shows three or four times, and he still had no idea who I was. Right. But gradually over time, it was actually through his wife, who was much more socialized than he is, his wife Dara, that I got to know him. It was really, uh, I befriended her. And I then, then, even though I had, had a history with him and no history with her, I gradually got to know him. And then our friendship, it, it wasn't really a friendship. It was this crazy relationship based on this, uh, you know, this mutual love of Ray Walston and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and John Carradine and, and people like that. And that was the nature of the calls. We just sit on the phone for hours discussing this stuff. And, and long story short, wow. Dara, said, Dara said one day, why don't you guys put this to productive use? The calls were so wonderful and so memorable and so funny that I wanted to record them. And that led to uh, the podcast, which, as I said to you guys before, I didn't think anyone would listen to. I thought this was, this was going to be a very a small, loyal army of uh, obsessed people. And we're pleasantly surprised by the reaction. Have you had attention from any of the mainstream newspapers or magazines? Has anyone approached you, say, from time to say, this phenomenal podcast, this colossal podcast, has anyone, have you had attention via that that's increased the listenership? Well, yeah. I mean, again, we, we, I, I didn't know anything about podcasting. He knew even less. I, I did a little research, and it occurred to me that, that most of these podcasts that were hosted by comedians were kind of incestuous. It was comedians interviewing other comedians. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, yeah. It was Jim Norton talks to, uh, talks to Norm right. McDonald. Norm MacDonald talks to Penn Jillette, and Penn Jillette talks to Adam Carolla, and they were all, and Mark Maron, they were all guesting on each other's shows. Mm-hmm. It's the modern business card, basically. Yeah, there's a little of that. I thought, let's do something different. Let's take our phone calls. Let's take Dara's advice. 
let's take our phone calls and let's do a show about the things that we love. You know, our love of, of uh, nostalgia autograph shows and uh, Turner Classic movies and, and, and the Sci-Fi Channel. And Gilbert always loved Atomic Age uh, sci-fi films and horror, universal horror films. And I said, let's sure, build a sure. show around that. That's where the art right. came from, the whole kind of idea of Amazing Colossal, which was obviously a, a riff on Amazing Colossal Man. Right. And that kind of that kind of informed the show. That gave us a motif. And and as I said, pleasantly surprised. I mean, iTunes named us one of the podcasts of the year pretty quickly, pretty soon into the process. That was a thrill. And then Rolling Stone wrote us up and Wired and Splitsider and recently the LA Times. It's a revelation to me. We really started it at Gilbert's Kitchen Table as a lark, as a pure vanity project. I never thought that it would that it would develop this kind of following. So, you know, we're thrilled. It's the, certainly the most high profile thing I've ever done. I mean, look, I'd say probably what I find so appealing about it is because it does sound so natural. I mean, some of these podcasts that you talk about, that uh, you're having the comedians talking with the other comedians and the like, and it does sound very planned out and it does sound very thought out. And that's, you know, I guess in their world, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what appeals to us, I'm sure all of, I can speak for all of us in this sense, is that it's... It just sounds so natural. It very much sounds off the cuff. You have your guests, you'll have, you know, Gilbert throws something out there, they'll be taken off guard, but they'll respond accordingly. And right. Yeah. There was a lot of navel-gazing going on, I thought, in these podcasts. I mean, I enjoyed some of them, but I thought they were, they were too focused on stand-up and that life, right. and they were too much about the host. Mm, and I right. said, listen, we, we have genuine affection for these people. Let's not navel mm -hmm. gaze. Let's turn, let's turn it outward and let's give people that we love a forum. Well, that's, a, that's just it. I mean, like the one thing that I really, really love most of all about your podcast is the fact that, you know, it's sweet. There's a real endearment that can be felt, I mean, in every episode. But what's funny is it reminds me so much of my grandmother where, you know, you know she would just emanate love and then all of a sudden she'd say something and I'd say, what did you just say? <laughs> you know, like, 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 it's just, what the hell did you just, holy shit, you didn't say that, did you? Oh, yeah, she said that, you know, but it, but it's still that love, you know, like, you know, no matter, no matter how far you guys go into the, to the degradation or the, you know, the absolute, you know, like, uh, filthiness, it all comes back to that endearment and love, and that's, Thank that's you. what I really really love about your podcast thank you i think we're working both sides of the street that way you know that there's there's a ton of affection and admiration for these people that's why i do such deep research uh sure. not only because he doesn't do any at all <laughs> so, some of it is me compensating but it's because i feel like the, the ken berries of the world or the roger corman's of the world or uh, larry storch or right uh, uh you know we just had jethro on the show max bear jr we'll put up in a couple of weeks that that you know they're doing us a favor by coming on they may not you know they may not be as prominent as they once were no. but they've got they've got stories to tell and and i feel right. like not only should the stories be heard, but that we should pay them the respect of, um, that's the pl most pleasant part for me, is that when I, I can see them reacting or their face light up, because I know, I, I, we've bothered to know so much about them. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of appreciation you guys have, and I feel like I owe a debt to Gilbert just from watching USA Up All Night for all those years. <laughs> yeah, like I, yeah. I feel like he really introduced me to a lot of you know crazy movies I would otherwise never have sought out. You know, like him and Ron Shear 
are kind of, uh, you know, step parents of my own budding oh, cinematic interests. Well, funny, <laughs> funny you mention Rhonda because she's coming up. Oh, help me. Help me, Rhonda. Whoa. Yeah, she's a, she, she will be a, she will be a guest, and we'll probably either this week or next week. Uh, Rhonda, the Rhonda episode will be up, and that was a, that was a no holds barred one. Wow, <laughs> one of the episodes that I really loved. It was really funny. Is I was flying down to Thailand last February on holidays, and I was on the plane listening to you guys interview Chuck McCann, and uh, that was just amazing. And I. I Oh, Chuck McCann. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, I was so absorbed into like listening to him talk about, you know, Buster Keaton and everything. And all of a sudden, after it was over, I went, wait a minute, I'm on a plane. I'm going to Thailand. Like, you know, it was just, I was just wrapped, enraptured right into that oh, episode. Thank you. You know, uh, it's, it's a funny thing. First of all, Chuck was one of four guests that we've had that knew Buster Keaton personally and worked right. with him. Right, right. So I feel right. that we're keeping that alive. I think uh, you have to remember when this generation, James Cameron worked with Buster Keaton, yeah. uh, uh, Paul Dooley worked with him, uh, McCann worked with him. When these people are gone, I mean, that's the last link. Frankie Avalon, who we had on, worked with Groucho. Yes. Right, right, uh, right. When, when, and uh, McCann worked with Groucho. He did, a he did a right guard commercial with him. When these people are gone, that's it. I mean, there's no connection mm -hmm. uh, anymore to that past. So, so th this gets back to the whole idea of us being archivists. We really take this seriously right. that we're giving these people a forum. Look, the, sh the show's become history. I look forward to seeing the show being stored in the Smithsonian. Years from now. Well, you know, I would we're trying to being launched onto a spacecraft to emanate out to Mars. <laughs> I think Gilbert has the same wish for me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I could just see it now. That, you know, they put it onto some satellite or something and send it off into space, and then in 200 years, the aliens come back, and the first thing they say is, "Hello, I'm Gilbert Godfrey. Welcome." To <laughs> It's, it's a little like, do you know Gilbert's Ben Gazar a bit? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's similar. It's funny that you stumbled on this because it's a little like a bit where he's a, he, he used to do a bit where he's awakened in the middle of the night by, by flashing lights across the wall of his bedroom. And he runs through the bedroom window and his, the light is so blinding that he can't see. And he throws open the blinds and it's even brighter. And he's half asleep and he stumbles down the stairs and he pushes open the screen door, and out on the lawn there's a giant spaceship that lands with whirling lights and orbs and blinding light and red light and blue light and steam rising up and smoke and a little door, trap door drops down and an extraterrestrial, a tiny extraterrestrial, stumbles out of the ship and walks up to Gilbert and opens his mouth to speak and says, Ben Gazar is a good actor. Why can't he get a series? <laughs> <laughs> That's the bit. Well, that do it justice because but, but that's like the podcast but that's the podcast i mean you never yeah. know if they ever get the transmissions you know the one day they'll come back and that'll be yes, it man <laughs> when, I, when i would see him in clubs and i and i thought who, who is this person that could come up with this concept of an you know this close encounters moment this extraterrestrial you know that, yeah. that just the, just the idea of that bit combines his love of those kind of cheeseball sci-fi movies and his love of a, of a kind of obscure character actor like Ben Gazzara. Right, right. Really, I think the podcast was born in 1979 or 80 or 81 when I saw him in the clubs, you know, doing Ted Bessel in the Georgie Jessel story. Right. 
<laughs> that was the that was the seed of this thing. It did so in a way. It's kind of like thirty years in the making. Wow. You know, that's why I think I um I, th I think I once sent you a note, Frank, saying would there be any possibility that you get someone like Bette Midler on the show, and you'd gone and said that she was probably not someone you you thought you might be able to get, but it's just because I still remember back to that film that came out, I think it was 1979 or 1980 of her concert tour, Divine Madness, and she did mm -hmm. that whole Sophie Tucker routine, and I thought that oh, yeah. so much, that would appeal to Gilbert so much, I think he could bring out, you know, forget about beaches, forget about everything that she's done in the interim, he'd, he'd bring back the filthy Divine Miss M. And, yeah, uh, we'll yeah. try you no, know, one of the pleasant surprises is that the bookings have gotten. Well, I don't want to say better, but we started. We started out just thinking it didn't really matter. We weren't chasing eight listers. We we were content to talk to Larry Storch and Chuck McCann, and we you know that was the show we wanted to do. Mm. So now having somebody as as successful and as high profile as Judd Apatow or Weird Al or uh, Bob Costas, who we have coming up, uh, wow. uh, that. Pleasant do you surprise. reach out through agents, or do you have somebody? Do you have an agent of your own who reaches out? How do you get guests? You know, it's funny, Dara. We we basically just get the phone numbers and we call <laughs> them up. In some in some cases, it's you know with retired performers. In some cases, it's their own number hmm. or or their or their own service. Semi-retired performers or retired performers, you can go directly to them. With with those people, it's kind of like our little network. The Friars Club helps us. We right. we have relationships with three or four or five people who run autograph and nostalgia shows. So it's just hey, hook us up with Ken Berry or hook us up with uh, you know with Gavin McLeod or and they'll give us those numbers. In in cases where we don't know anybody, we just use IMDb Pro and and if you join, you know you can get the agent or the manager or the publicist contact info. Right. And one of the wonderful things about Dara Gilbert's wife is she's not. She's not so plugged into show business that she's in any way dazzled or intimidated by somebody's fame. Yep. Calling Larry Storch to do the show is the same thing to her as calling David Letterman to do the show. Right. 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 She she just has this kind of natural way about her. She's not she doesn't recognize the cast system. So she'll just pick up the she'll call me and she'll say, Hey, I had an idea for a guest and I'll say, What what did she have in mind? And she'll say, What about Paul McCartney? <laughs> And I'll she'll, say, yeah, she'll do it. She'll do it. She'll call him, and with no pretense, you know, she'll say, "Hi, I'm Dara. I'm Gilbert Gottfried's wife, and uh, uh, we we have this little show." And she's she's totally authentic about it, and I, I think that's yeah. charming. You know, I think the guests, the guests, and she, you know, she humanizes Gilbert in that way too. It's the sweet, normal, polite, gracious wife of this this. Right. this uh, radicalized comedian calling when you're putting on airs or you're blowing smoke with people then people like you were saying earlier they just kind of lock into their automatic kind of media mode you know and that's not what you want you want them to just be natural and just you know irreverent and just you know be who they are not kind of you know, be something yeah. because they're they're trying film or they're trying to promote a new project or whatever and she's so authentic that when she makes the initial contact i really think that puts people's defenses uh, uh i think their defenses go down mm -hmm. you know like she'll call ed asner and and uh you know i'm ex kind of explaining who ed asner is and because she's not even though she's married to gilbert she's not a media junkie she's not a tv or movie junkie i'm always explaining uh, you know i'm always giving her the history of the guest we're about to interview and there's something really refreshing about that oh yeah and i think 
Sure. She's not kissing the guest tush when she calls them. It's just, hey, we have this show. We're, we're fans. My husband's a fan of yours. Would you like to come on? And she's, as I said, she's so natural and so, uh, so authentic about it. I think that's been one of the things that has swayed people. I've booked a couple of people myself, but mostly it's, uh, mostly it's her. Can we ask Dara whether she'd be our booking agent? <laughs> She'll do it for you for a song. Oh, the, the nice thing that's happened too is that as the show has grown, people have started to call us, and that's a thrill. You know, that's Richard, my actor wrote me an email and said, "You guys got me through uh, through knee surgery, and I've I've listened to every episode twice. Can I come on the show?" Oh, Bob, man. I think Costas reached out to us too, and that's thrilling. You know that that that's making our lives that much easier. We don't have to we don't have to beg. So okay, so people out there who want to find Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, I can't remember what the um what the URL what the website is, but if you just go into Google and type in Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, or into iTunes or whatever podcast search engine you happen to use, it's, uh, it's a sideshow network. Right, yeah, sideshow network. We we have a standalone website that's that's being built as we speak. Okay. Right. Uh, we, we have yet, yet to decide on that URL, but you can get the show through Stitcher or SoundCloud or iTunes or Sideshow Network's website or, or Gilbert's site. Right. right. It, you, you've got like over a year's worth of episodes up there online, and if you're a listener out there who hasn't caught onto the show yet, be prepared. It's addictive. You are going to do a binge. I know that all of us have. So. Oh, thanks, Morris. We appreciate that. We're. Very, I'm very proud of it. And don't listen with your grandmother. Although your grandmother <laughs> could explain to you who several of the guests. She could explain some of the references. Oh yeah, sure. Well, I know. I've noticed that there are a small number of guests who you've had where, where Gilbert sort of tones it down. So I come the the two uh, Hollywood biographers. Oh yeah, Joan Joan Kramer and David Healy. Right, right, and he toned it down for them, and he toned it down for Barbara Eden. I, oh, I Barbara think, Felden. Oh, sorry, Barbara, Barbara Felden. Felden. Sorry, my yeah. mistake, my mistake. Bar yeah. Barbara Felden. I imagine he'd turn it, tone it down for Barbara Eden as well. Uh, tell me, was was Gilbert sort of like taken a little bit by surprise? You would seen the look on his face when Lee Merriweather said she wanted to spank him because he'd been that pretty quiet to that point. That was wonderful. We did Lee Merriweather and Mike Nesmith back to back, and we were in a we were at an autograph show in Jersey, and they just came in. But Mike Nesmith came in. Doesn't he doesn't really even give interviews, so that was a thrill. Mm. He came in. He walked out of the room. Lee Merriweather walked in, and you know, with a, with a uh, uh, with a genteel, dignified person like Lee Merriweather, you know, a lady. I'm yes. always on, on, you know, my loins are girded. I'm always on guard. Yes. And it's a fine line. You never know where he's going to go. She turned out to be such a sport about it. That that, that became right. one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, that's that's the one that I liked the most. Out of right. I, listened. I thought she was hilarious. I, I, I thought she was delightful. I think my my favorite one was, uh, what was his name? Steve, uh, oh, geez, the guy who wrote the Stooges books. And, uh, oh, Steve Fox, yeah. Oh, that episode, man! I tell you, the I couldn't last breathe. Minutes. Yeah. I could, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't I breathe. Couldn't I was be, laughing I'm so hard. I'm, I'm co-hosting the show. If you listen to the last twelve minutes of that episode, you 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 don't hear me because I was actually gasping for air. We turn off the we turn off the AC in Gilbert's apartment because it interferes with the audio. And I right. think it was a June, a late June or early July day, and it was and all the windows are closed. There's no air. There's no ceiling fan or anything in there. And I mean, it was so hot that I was delirious. And uh, you know, when he gets on a roll like that, somebody said something interesting that the show runs the gamut. Somebody said, 
you talk about the affection of it. Somebody said, Frank, you're doing Robert Osborne. You're doing the Robert Osborne interview on TCM or the Charlie Rose show. And Gilbert's doing the Howard Stern show. <laughs> right. At you're the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, what, it's what the kids nowadays call a mashup. A mashup. Yeah, yeah. I never know which episode to turn people on to, so I kind of suss them out a little bit. The Steve Cox episode would be for the hardcore people or the Bob Oh, Sack. God. All right. I think at this stage what we might do is we'll have a quick break, and then we'll come back and discuss the film which we're together for on this show all that jazz from 1979 you're listening to see here with frank santa padre tim merrill <laughs> wendy freeman and myself i'm morris we'll uh, speak to you in a minute or two candy casey very good you're gonna do it again victoria stop smiling it's not the high school play count oh, five six seven eight one all that oh. work stand on your right foot point your left toe drop that shoulder all that oh, pain that's not too hard is it Oh boy, do I hate show business. All that Come glitter. Come jokes is what I mean. Bill, you love show business. That's right, I love show business. All that love. I'll go either way. It's showtime, folks. All that jazz. Thank you very much for listening. You're tuned in to the See Here podcast. We discuss films that have some sort of relationship to music. Uh, it can be the main core subject of the film, or it can be you know just slightly related to it, but we'll use it in any way that we can. And uh, it's Morris here in Melbourne, Wendy in Chicago, Tim in Seoul, and Frank in New York. We're very sorry that our good compadre, Mr. Bernard Stickwell, is not available this time, but he'll be back for next month's show. But here we are this time around to discuss 1979's film, All That Jazz. Now, this was directed by Bob Fosse and stars Roy Scheider. Jessica Lange, 
Leland Palmer and Ranking, and what I think is a knockout cameo from uh, Ben Vereen, but we'll get to that uh, very shortly. Uh, don't forget Sandal Bergman. No, forgive me. She's there you go. quite important. And also, how weird is it having a movie starring somebody named Leland Palmer that's not Twin Peaks? Yeah, that was that struck me as strange too. I wondered if that was a <laughs> that was an homage that character <laughs> on Twin a Peaks. Woman, a woman named Leland. Okay, so oh, the, the other person I want to mention from a technical side, and normally I don't think we do this, but because it it'll be related to something I want to bring up later is the film's editor is uh, one Alan Heim now I'll be expecting uh, Frank will have a few words about uh, Alan to uh, educate us on this if uh if uh, you could, Frank. But uh, Craig- he won the he won the Oscar. When you watch the film, and I watched it yesterday. I mean, the editing is one of the things that hits you. Well, the and- man asked the question: Was this the same editor that he used on Lenny? I, yes, I believe it was. And, uh, right, yeah, since I'm, there's I'm, so I'm much talk about but, the editing of, of Lenny in the movie, I was I was curious if. But uh, but not on Cabaret. And having said that, I think that the um, the style, the look, the editing on all three films is very similar. But. We will get to that shortly. I have another connection with Alan Heim, which is actually related to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast and in a film that you guys recommended. But once again, we'll bring that up shortly. Quick IMDb synopsis as written on IMDb. Director choreographer Bob Fosse tells his own life story as he details the sordid life of Joe Gideon, played by Roy Scheider, a womanizing, drug-using dancer. Um, uh, yeah, well, anyway, that's their synopsis. Before we go any further, by necessity, this uh, discussion will be spoiler-heavy. You really can't discuss this film without going all no. the way through. But this is about the journey. You should still watch this if you haven't, because it's really about how they tell the story rather than there being some killer ending that you're not expecting. It's no. really well. I mean, you can spoil everything, and you still can't express those set pieces. No, the, right. the visual spectacle, the visual right. spectacle of it all. Yeah, right. So I, I want to defer to uh, our guest, Frank. Uh, now, yeah. when I spoke to you a few weeks ago and suggested uh, that would you like to come onto the show and discuss this film, and you said to me that this was, uh, I think, if I got this right, in your top twenty movies of, or so of all time. I want to know about the first time you saw this and how you felt. Now, you know, presumably you'd seen Fosse as an actor in you know, some of his other films like My Sister Eileen or The Little Prince, but uh, and, and you would have seen Lenny and Cabaret. So when did and you Star first 80. see Star 80. Right. Yeah, right. Star 80. Also yeah. edited by Alan, uh, Alan Heim, by the way. Okay. Yeah. So, so what, were, what, were you, what were your first thoughts when you saw this? And did you see this on cinema release? I saw this, yes. I saw this in the movies. I was 18, all of 18. And, you know, it's funny. I, I had seen Cabaret kind of as a kid. And I think, well, Cabaret came out in 72. I was 11. I didn't understand Cabaret at all. Who, who could blame me? I was a child. <laughs> I don't know how much of all that jazz I even understood when I saw it. There was... Uh, where I grew up, a little town called Mineola, Long Island, there was a uh, there was an eighty cent theater. It's long gone, the Mineola Theater, and you could see movies on their last legs for you know the, the, before it left town. It was the last run theater. I saw everything right. there: Animal House and uh, the Changeling and all kinds of things. I saw there Apocalypse Now. But I said, so I'm 18 and I see all that jazz and I didn't really. I knew Roy Scheider as the guy from Jaws. I didn't know much at all. I wasn't, I wasn't such a cinema head, you know, I wasn't so into this stuff as a teenager, as I later became. Uh, didn't, no, I didn't know Fosse really as a, as a performer at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny, the film made, had such an impact on me, even, even in my ignorance, even in my naivete. I, I just thought, what is this thing? 
it, it, you know, it was such an assault on the senses, and I mean that in a positive way. You know, uh, uh, the, the the audaciousness of it, and the and the confidence of it, and the the, the darkness of it. I mean, I remember. I must have had a dark side even as a kid because I remember, you know, the last shot of them being zipped in the body bag. I know we're giving spoilers here, and you go right to to uh, to, to Ethel Merman singing "There's No Business Like Show Business." I wasn't even in show business. Of course, now I see it, and it resonates. In <laughs> twenty-five years in show business, thirty years in show business later, of course, it resonates with me in a much different way. And as I said, my my wife and I just watched it again yesterday, and. Uh, even then, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't have an experience in show business. I didn't really understand what he was going for. I didn't understand the satire, and yet I was so affected by it. I was so affected by the razzle dazzle of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the sh- the showmanship of it. Right. And and uh, even if you don't like the film, I know Leonard Maltin has never given the film a good review. Really? Uh, his TV his TV guide, his TV movie book, which I respect. And by the way, we had Leonard Leonard coming up on the show on the podcast. And it's one of those films I really, one of those reviews I take issue with. Take him to task for it. Do I, it. There's, <laughs> there, there, you know, the film is so self-indulgent, and again, I, right. that's one of the things I like about it that, it, that it's not for everyone. It's not to everyone's taste. And yet, I defy anybody, even who doesn't like the film, to watch that last number, or those the, the last sequence, the third act, if you will, the extended, you know, Who's Sorry Now, the Busby Berkeley uh, right. tribute. Look at you, Daddy. Oh, all those broken vows. And then, and then uh, the Vereen stuff, which is just uh, it jumps off the screen at you. And even if you're sitting there saying, "Oh, this is unpleasant," and this is this is bleak, and this is self-indulgent. It's still remarkable filmmaking, mm. right? And but that's just, that's who Flossie was, though. I mean, yes. like self self indulgent. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and that's part of the genius of it. I, I you know, and I again, I remember being. I don't remember much about it except being a kid, and like I said, eighteen, and 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 sitting there and and thinking, this is just. I, I I don't know what this is. I need to know. And then I go back and I watch Cabaret, and then I watch Lenny, and then I went and got myself a Bob Fosse education. But uh, I've always loved black comedy. I've always loved that kind of brutal honesty in cinema. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess I guess why I like Eight and a Half, why I like Stardust Memories, why I like Blake Edwards' S.O.B. You know, they're they're all kind of of a of a uh, they're all films of a kind. You know. Yes. Right. See, I have a uh, question. So. Was Roy Scheider a song and dance man at any point? Like, what makes them so. cast? Yeah, like, like it seems so odd to cast him in this. You know, I mean, you certainly don't see him uh, exhibiting this in Sorcerer. Wendy, I was, was going to say, I was going to say uh, on the, um, the DVD copy that I have, and no, it's not the Criterion edition. It's just the uh, just the ordinary whatever it was, uh, 20th Century Fox edition DVD. One of the bonus extras was an interview with Scheider on set and he basically says, no, I've never done any of this sort of thing before and I've, I've just, I've had a real education, but I, I wanted to move away from the tough guy stuff. I wanted to show that I could do something else, even though he, he doesn't carry off a whole lot of amazing choreography or he doesn't necessarily have the greatest voice in the world. But it, he still plays the role very, very physically. Right. Well, like in that last, in that one sequence where he's dancing through the puddles, 
towards the yeah. end where he's in the, the, the hospital, hospital and he's doing that whole like tap dance for the puddles like he's I, I, I don't know if that's really I mean it seems like there are a lot of like uh, long shots of it but but he definitely seems to really have it and he has that whole I love that scene where he's dancing with his daughter and you know like right. he really has this that's physicality. a wonderful scene yeah I, I you know there's a book I can recommend to all of you called Fosse by a writer named Sam Wasson mm-hmm. W-A-S-S-O-N and there's a lot of good stuff in there about all that jazz and there's I don't I don't have the Criterion disc so I don't know if that's on there so forgive me if I'm repeating something you guys know but the casting of Joe Gideon was one of the big challenges Um, and you know everybody from Paul Newman to Alan Alda to uh, Warren Beatty was approached they actually waited on Warren Beatty because they were so serious about him and according to Wasson's book he was he was curious about the part he insisted that the Gideon character live which is kind of a (laughs) defeats the whole Purpose kind of, of defeats the whole purpose. And then, of course, Richard Dreyfus, which Morris and I discussed a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about our little pre-interview about this, and Richard Dreyfus was cast. Wow. Richard Dreyfus was in the part. Richard Dreyfus was in rehearsals. I mean, nothing against Richard Dreyfus, but, uh, I mean, why didn't they just go out and get Billy Barty while they were at it? I mean, well, they did right. the jaw swap. They did a jaw no, swap, right? But it's but it's just Richard Dreyfus is is such a short guy, and I just can't see him playing Joe Gideon. You know, it's well, neither just, could no. Richard Dreyfus. Ultimately, no. there's a great quote in the book, and I'm sure you can find it online, where he started. First of all, he says. There's a, there's a moment where he and Scheider have dinner together, and he says, I don't like Fosse, and Fosse doesn't like me. Right. They, they, they not only clashed, but there's a, great, uh, there's a great quote in the book where Dreyfus says to uh, uh, one of the producers, I think Daniel Melkin, he says, I just can't see my, me up there on the screen dancing with my fat, Jewy ass. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So he's coming off an Oscar for the Goodbye Girl, yeah. you know, and then Close Encounters and Jaws before that, and he was he was yeah. hot. I think that's one of the reasons the studio wanted him. But I think to his credit, and I'll ask him about this if Gilbert and I can get him on the show, and we've been chasing him. I think to his credit, he knew this is this I'm gonna I'm gonna look silly here. Right, 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 right. And then I, at that point, when the studio called him, David Begelman, uh, I think it was, or, uh, or Begelman was busted, and then I think, uh, was it Sam? I'm trying to remember who it was who became the, uh, the the temporary head of the studio. It's in the book. Basically approached uh, Fosse and said, well, Dreyfus is out. And, and at that point, Fosse was so frustrated with the casting process that he said, I want to play it myself. Oh, man. Yeah. And there was some thought given to him, can you imagine, him not only writing and... Well, and well that's... That's the incredible thing because I was just about to say that, okay, sure, you can look at, you know, someone like Fellini as being the, you know, progenitor, the originator of the meta film. But when you look at all that jazz, I mean, it's about Fosse's life, but then it's also the music that Fosse worked on and then the actual, you know, shows that Fosse worked on and then Lenny, I mean, like, you know, it, it's, it's just unbelievable, the, the whole juggling act that, you know, Fosse does in, in directing and then putting his, li- his own life, you know, on the screen and then with everything yeah. else involved with it. It's, it's just absolutely, this is the, the penultimate meta film to me but can you and can you imagine him actually lying there in the hospital bed playing the part as well playing right himself? that's what i'm saying and that's what i'm yeah. saying to, to only add another layer to it would have just 
blown my head off. You know, it just yeah. You know. Scheidner supposedly showed up, went to Fosse, and and he to, to answer your question, Wendy, I don't think he had any musical theater background at all, but he had done a lot of cheesy low rent theater, and he he says in in the Wasson book that that's how he won Fosse over by just going there and telling him stories and being very self deprecating about all this bad theater he'd done, and that's how they bonded. Huh. Right. And all I right. think he was just I think he was just more of a man's man. I think there was just more of a who knows chemistry is mysterious, but they. They, they clicked. And you're right, he doesn't, uh, Morris is right when he says he doesn't quite carry the singing and the dancing off quite as well. But if you think about the bankable stars of that era, who the hell could have played that part? I think the thing that's interesting too, though, is that, you know, Fosse could have, you know, because it was his life, and, you know, and when you see in the film how he's such a perfectionist, you know, in terms of everything, he could have made it so glossed over. Like, he just, he could have went with someone that danced his ass off, like a Christopher Walken type, you know. Like, he could have went with some someone that was just so on point. But he went with, you know, Scheider, who shows that he has a frailty to him, you know, that he has, yeah. you know, a, you know, that he has a, he's a flawed character. But and, I, th- and, I think and, that's completely in line with, Fosse's philosophy from previous films like Cabaret and Lenny because there's a whole lot of beauty going on so like you know in in Lenny there was the humor but there was the ugliness that sort of led to the humor and in Cabaret there was you know Sally Bowles who wanted to do all singing all dancing and didn't give a shit personally that Nazi Germany was happening outside her door as long as she can get to the Kit Kat Club and do her song and dance that's her beauty and but the reality is ugly maybe this time For the first time, love won't hurry away. Doesn't my body drive you wild with desire? Mm -hmm. And in all that jazz, we have really no one, but not necessarily just Scheider, but no one but... Um, an actor who didn't necessarily have a perfect background in choreography or or singing could have done the role because they wanted to have someone who was a a, a real person, real human. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that whenever someone is directing their own life story up on screen, you know, there's that ultimate temptation to kind of, you know, make them look, you know, in the greatest of light, make themselves look in, you know, the the highest of light. And and Flossie does not do that at all in this. Well, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think it's a conf- it's a confessional, right? You know, there's a, there's a, uh, also what I found in, in the book. I think you guys will be uh, uh, intrigued by this: the scene where Scheider runs up into the audience during "Bye Bye Love," right? During the grand finale, uh, when he runs up into the audience and he thanks the doctors and he says to Leland Palmer, he says to the Gwen Verdon character, "At least oh! I won't have to lie to you anymore." At least I won't lie to you anymore. That Scheider. And I hope this is true, that Scheider Fosse says to him, well, that must have been fun. That must have been fun to do. And he says, why don't you do it? Huh. Oh, man. And that Fosse ran up into the audience and, and he said he, he wanted to try it. He wanted to see what it felt like. And he ran into the audience and he said goodbye and he thanked these people who were actors standing in for the real people, I guess, in the exception, with the exception of Anne Ranking. Yes. Oh, and, was and he married to Anne Ranking? No, they were, they, were, they were an item, uh, I don't think at the time. I think he was with Julie Haggerty, the actress at the time. Oh, wow, from Airplane, wow. 
putting all that jazz together. But he and Anne Racking had had, a, had had a long relationship, and apparently it was a catharsis for him to run up into the audience. And then he came back and he said to Scheider, and they all forgave me. And Scheider said, "Yes, we all do." Oh man, yeah. So wow. yeah, I, I think the warts and all. I think that was that was the point of it. I mean, that's the part of it right. that's hard to, to look at. I was watching it last night. And, right. you know, it's bye-bye life, and the daughter comes out, and she says, you know, uh, uh, don't, you know, don't leave me, Daddy. And it's, I said, turn to my wife, and I said, this must have been hard for his family and hard for Anne Rankin sure. to do. Yeah. Sure. You know, it's sure. painful. It's, it's actually right. painful to watch. And you, 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 right. you, it's the brilliance of it. You, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful, magnificent, you know, uh, car crash. Despite the dark subject matter, I never—I wouldn't necessarily say that the film ever feels uplifting because it's obviously not that sort of film. But it never sort of really brought you down either. I mean, we're looking at every every yes. morning when he well, started out his day, uh, and he had the classical music, he had the Vivaldi music playing, and yeah. that was probably as close with the exception of, you know, a couple of bits in the hospital. But even there, it's all song and dance. It's the razzle-dazzle. It's the. It's what I was speaking with Tim about this um, during one of our discussions during the week. And my contention is that, okay, so we're like we, we see, uh, okay, for those of you out there who haven't seen the film, the, the story goes, it starts off, there are three big set pieces. There's a beginning where the Roy Scheider's character called Joe Gideon, who's the Bob Fosse proxy, is auditioning... Uh, cast and dancers for a big new production and the other bit there's a second set piece where they're doing a rehearsal for a number that's going to be the, like the big number for the show to show the production and the the big brass and at the end of the film the big set piece and this is a spoiler but it's really as we said not about the story because it's inevitable that he's we know where he's headed he's uh, in a coma in a hospital and he's choreographing his death uh, he's putting on this big song and dance number to uh, the Everly Brothers' Bye Bye Love. And my contention is, in fact, the whole film, from the beginning of the story when we're hearing on Broadway through to the very end, the whole thing is his whole, not the whole life, obviously, but these last few weeks of his life. He's in the coma right from the very beginning of the film. And that's why we get these cut shots, because he's remembering this bit, and he's speaking to the angel of death, come to shortly. And he, he's speaking to all these people, and he's remembering all these incidents. And, you know, it, when you watch things that happen in a film, everything segues smoothly and perfectly. But we get all these cut shots, and one moment he's speaking to the angel of death, and then he's speaking to his ex-wife, and then he's speaking to his girlfriend, and and it all sort of intercuts, and that's what I imagine. You, you, nothing, when you're trying to recall your life, you're not remembering, or even when you're dreaming at night, you don't remember right. anything in a smooth, segued sort of way. It's all these cuts. You go here, nothing ever seems logical. So it's, that's why it's my contention that the whole film is Joe Gideon in a coma, and he's just recalling all these things, and he's speaking it to these could people. Be. You, yeah. yeah, you're you're and, allowed to interpret it that way. And here's an interesting thing too, like a connection that I found that was kind of weird was that there's an actor who plays the young Joe Gideon, uh, Keith Gordon. Sure. And Keith Gordon actually later on went to direct uh, a version of a BBC production of uh, the Singing Policeman. Oh, the Singing Detective. Uh, yeah. Singing yeah. Detective. Yeah, that's yeah, the, the one. Yeah. Yeah. The and the whole Potter. right, and the whole conceit of that is a guy who's in a coma, laying in bed. And he's watching his whole life, you know, kind of go on. And I thought that was kind of interesting, the connection there. And, and another film that this reminded me of that, you know, actually uh, was released later on was um, Richard Pryor's uh, 
autobiography, the Jojo Dancer film. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this really reminded me of that in the sense of, you know, prior looking back at all his mistakes and his flaws and, you know, being kind of a third person to his own life. One thing that I wanted to say uh, before I forget is to me, well, there's two points to this. Um, I think that Joe Gideon as a character, as a character, the only way I could put it was he's, he's a beast fueled on manipulation. Everything in his life, he has to manipulate, he has to edit, he has to control. And that which he doesn't control, he just avoids and just dances around it. And it kind of brings a real duality into the whole film where there, you know, it, it becomes either on or off. And on is, you know, what he has his fingers on, you know, like he's like the puppeteer. And then off is the things that, you know, he, he can't, he can't, uh, he doesn't have any say in the matter with, with his health, with his wife, you know, the way she feels about him. And, and, the, and, and the, there's the things that he cannot control. The, you know, I mean, he's in his element when he's editing the film and when he, you know, he's in front of the dancers and he's completely on. But whenever, you know, he has to face these inevitable things that he has no say over, that's when he can't handle it. And, it, and there's also the, the matter that he and himself is also being manipulated by, you know, the financiers and the guys that are running the show. Right. That's right. Well, it's like I loved so much when he gives that speech about how he's never said I love you except as, uh, you know, to manipulate something or like, you know, his insincerity. And then like at the end of the movie when he goes into that old woman in the hospital and he yeah. kisses her, it's like, you're so beautiful. I love you. It's like. It it was uh, once again like his manipulation and him being able to com- compel anyone, you know. Well, that's what's right. right about that. That scene is one of those scenes that you can interpret any way you want it to interpret. He says to the woman on her deathbed, "You're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen." And right. you know, and is it another manipulation? Is it is it the final ex- uh, the final stage of death? Is he finally accepting death? You know, which is that that runner, right, right, with with, with Gorman and 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 Lenny. I mean, and and uh, Wendy talks about where he's in the 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 water, where he's in the the, the flooded uh, part of the hospital. Right. He meets he meets the the uh, the custodian who's got a little song and dance man in him too. How that custodian being on the table sounds just like congas, you know. Right. There's so <laughs> much going <laughs> on there that you you. You could interpret it any way you want to, and it, Morris's uh, uh, take on it that it's kind of a dream that it's we're we're watching a guy in a coma or we're watching. You 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 get that if you want to see it that way, you know it's it's he's imagining it or he's in the coma right. or he's he's between surgeries and this is a fantasy or you know and and yet it's not so literal. It 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 really can. Um, it's one of the beautiful things about it is that it's subject to all these different kinds of interpretation. Sure, sure. I like the fact that he even tries to flirt with Jessica Lang. You know, like sure. he's even trying to flirt with death, and right. she's just you know. And at first, like, there's the bit where she's like, you know, he's like, I don't want to go yet. I don't want to go, and she's like, You don't want to go yet. And and he and he actually thinks that he has some type of control over that, you know. And yeah. so she lets she lets him go and have a little bit more time. And what does he do with it? He, he pisses it away in the hospital where he's drinking champagne and, you know, he's partying and just having a good old time. And Now, I think his, his relationship with uh, Jessica Lang as the angel of death was really, really interesting. I mean, they were all interesting relationships, but he's failed all these women in his life. I mean, I think that the women who were, who were doing the Busby Berkeley thing, 
uh, in the dream sequence towards the end around the oh, bed. Who's sorry now? Who's sorry now? They represent yeah. every woman that he's ever slept with. But the three women who are most important in his life, they get their own song. So that's his ex-wife, his current girlfriend, his and his daughter. daughter. And his daughter. His daughter. And he's... It's interesting because, like, on the one hand, you know, if if this film had not been presented the way it was, you'd almost look at this guy. He's a he's a heel, or as, you know, they used to say in old British terms, he's a cad, he's a boundless right. scoundrel, uh, and yet he is. If, if they have sympathy and love for him, then we get that sympathy and love for him as well. I mean, well, maybe not love, but right. we, but we, none he's, of these, he's yeah. not a, he's not an utter bastard. We, we, no. we know he, he's a, he's a, a man who's got a lot of faults and a lot of flaws and we're not, those flaws are not being hidden from us. Ah, uh, Joe, I don't want to go out with Michael Graham. I don't want to date. I have no more small talk left. I don't want to fool around. I don't want to play games and I don't want to fight. I just want to love you. Katie, I try to give you everything I can give. Oh, you give all right? Presents, clothes? I just wish you weren't so generous with your cock. But he's not really something that we find repulsive either. Right. You know what it is? Uh, Michael Caine and Alfie. Yeah, yeah you know, a little bit. One of the things I yeah. like is that none of these women are ever portrayed as stupid. No, like, like no, they're all he, strong. Even though they're all strong. They're all like really smart. His daughter's awesome. Like, it's great that you can easily portray that he's just sleeping around with these women. Oh, they're so dumb. They're falling for this. They just want to sleep their way up. But even that one dancer who knows that right. she's not good, he's even straightforward with her. Like, yeah, you're never going to go to Hollywood. You know, it, it's it, all these women are, are there willingly of their own accord. The interesting one is I was starting to allude to before with, uh, with, with the angel of death. And like, I mean, okay, so in, in films like uh, Monty Python's Meaning of Life or in Woody Allen's Love and Death, we get the Grim Reaper. And even in right. his mind, you know, womanhood and sex is just so important to him that even the Grim Reaper to him is not the Grim, Weep Grim Reaper. It's uh, a beautiful woman dressed in white, like as if, and he's going to be married to death. She's, yeah. she's, uh, she's dressed in white, she's virginal. And she's his ideal woman. And th this is the one woman who he can't be unfaithful to. Once he's committed to death, that's it. He's committed to death. He, he's been a lousy father. He's been a lousy husband, a lousy boyfriend. But this is the one woman who he's not going to run away from. Well, and they make right. it clear from the beginning that, that they've always had a relationship. I can't remember the exact line, but she says something in Act 1 about how you've been flirting with me. Mm. And the mother, the, they have the flashbacks to the mother where she's standing at the stove and she's talking about what a good boy Joey was. In fact, right. the mother is the, the, mother is the, uh, the vehicle that, that sets up the Keith Gordon scenes. Right, right. It's the mother that gets you that gets you into the uh, where where he's dancing in the strip club, and she says something to the screen, or uh, to, she says something to the camera, like uh, you know, Joey's always loved you, or Joey's Joey's always talked about you. So he's yeah. always kind of had it's clear that he's always had this death obsession. And then the way they handle it, which you which you're talking about, Morris, where when he starts to die at the end, when he's when he's kind of turned the corner, 
she takes off the hat and she takes off the veil. Right, right. And and she starts to rub him and touch him, and it's a it's a it's a seduction scene. It's 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 absolutely fascinating. And and I don't think there's ever been a film made where the direct and maybe someone that hears this will write in or call me or call in and correct me where you have the filmmaker basically preparing his death. He would be dead in 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 seven years or eight years. Yeah. The well, film came out in in, eight, in 79, he was shooting it in 78, right, so he's dead by 87. I think he knew in some way with his smoking and his drinking and his pill addiction, his speed addiction, that he wasn't long for the world. And It's going to catch up with him, yeah. Yeah, I think there are some people, if you've ever known someone like that, not necessarily someone who had a death wish, but someone who no. knew maybe their parents died young or maybe they knew that, that genetically or, you know, that... that uh, the odds weren't in their favor. They knew they weren't going to last a long time. And if you read the, the Wasson book, that seems to be the profile of him. Never has there been a film where somebody is basically preparing, is saying goodbye mm. on mm. film, and preparing, mm. preparing their own death. And uh, to Wendy's point about the women in the film, it's, it is one of the things that humanizes him. He's a very, very smart filmmaker. Because I'm watching it with my wife, and he is a cad, and he and he, he is an asshole. And in real life, I mean, he's still making Anne Ranking audition for her part mm -hmm. to play herself, <laughs> an accomplished singer. My wife said that's so offensive. An accomplished <laughs> yeah. singer dancer who was in a relationship with him is having to audition for the part of herself, be part of his control freak behavior. And yet the right. women, the the relationships with the women, it's so smartly done, especially the scene where he's dancing with his daughter and she's saying, why don't you get married? And he's saying, mind your own business. The relate and, and the song and dance number where Anne Ranking and the girl, the daughter, do that wonderful Peter Allen song. That was so yeah. sweet. It really yeah. is the best, to me. It's the best scene in the film. It, but that, in a way, I, I was sorry. I just wanted to interrupt there. I was going to say that I thought that that song, "Everything Old Is New Again," is the whole philosophy. I think for the way how Bob Fosse worked, because he was giving us old-fashioned song and dance numbers, but mixed with something new, which was, at least for the musical, which was you know fairly dark subject matter i mean you, you wouldn't have had you wouldn't have had stuff like this i mean i'm not saying that we didn't have dark musicals before but never as realistic as this you know like we're talking you know during the Hayes code we would never have had a film like that and so no. it, we, we get we get you know the, his his love of the old and obviously his participation in the old hollywood system with you know, big song and dance numbers mixed with the new that was the hollywood of the 70s where 
the haze cloud right. was off and and Hollywood cinema was going through its purple patch. And perfect example of that is when they actually have that dance number right in the middle where the guy the the airplane dance number, you know, fly Erotica. with us. Erotica. Welcome. Welcome aboard Erotica. Flying not only coast to coast, but anywhere your desires and fantasies wish to take you. Take off with us. Let us all get to know one another. Remember, we can take you anywhere. They're taking their clothes off. Anywhere you mm -hmm. want to go. Just reach out your hand and introduce yourselves. My name is Sam. My name is Autumn. My name is Jennifer. My name is Rima. Gary. John. Erotica. Erotica, right. And you know, what's really funny is how, you know, you see the guy sitting at the piano when he's coming up with it, like the old vaudevillian, you know, right. and everyone's singing along. And then all of a sudden, you know, with Fossey's kind of, you know, involvement in it, it totally reminded me of this old uh, softcore film from the 80s called Cafe Flesh. Yes, and which we was, did on Trashy Trio. Yeah, yeah yes, right, yes. right. The Rinse Dream film. Yeah, and it totally reminded me of that. that you know, And it just suddenly flips over. And it goes from this, you know, kind of, you know, like I say, razzle-dazzle, family-friendly little sing-song into something that's a completely different animal, you know? Yeah, well, once again, like, I felt like um, none of the songs in this were in any way campy. Like, you could do things like Everything Old is New Again or whatever, but the only thing, the only song where they're pointing at and saying, like, oh, isn't this kind of campy musically was when they're doing, you know, when they're doing the initial version of that airplane song, you know? Always. And another thing that struck me, especially during the sequence, is, is how, like, the open gayness of so much of it, like it's interesting because yeah. Bob Fosse is such a, a macho, such a manly, uh, you know, womanizing uh, character, but it's so accepting and it's so like very open about the flamboyance of some of those dancers. And I was just like, that just seems very sort of uh, remarkable for the time too. Right. Actually, I wanted to ask you a question, Wendy, because I think last, sometime last year, you posted on I, I can't remember if it was the gentleman's Facebook page or your own Facebook page that you just watched all that jazz and I think Bernie might have done the same thing saying that you were completely surprised because this film was nothing like what you were expecting so my question but what were you expecting I was expecting a, a really I was expecting it to be like a, a dumb musical you know <laughs> like, I, was I didn't think it was a serious thing I thought it was like a, a goofy cheesy kind of musical and and obviously I was I was young when you know I, I wasn't exposed to it when it was in the theater so uh, you know but I just always like I always thought of Bob Fosse is being like very a coarse line Chicago you know like that mm. kind of thing so that's totally not my typical bag I didn't realize you know I didn't know the uh, the depth of this movie the actress, <laughs> and I'm so happy I do uh, so you're, you're not a fan of Chicago or for that matter a chorus line. I know a chorus line is a very uh, I guess a more kitschy sort of version I mean it, it's basically right. it takes an hour and a half to do what they do in the first 10 minutes by the way, wasn't that sort of like a weird thing? Like, think about it. You had things like A Chorus Line and Staying Alive and this, like all in that very early 80s period. Like, it seemed like we were sort of fixated on behind the scenes of Broadway dancers at a certain point. <laughs> Am I right? Fame. 
It was Babe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Flash, flash dance. Uh-huh. Yeah. And let me just say, I love, man, there's something about the way the dancers in the 80s dressed. Like, I love that whole, like, leg warmers and leotards with the stockings and the, man, I think that that whole look is so, that's so hot. I don't know. Interesting you mentioned Chicago because he uh, he called, uh, uh, of course, the title, All That Jazz, comes from Chicago. Well, actually, right. from, from what I was reading up in my research, Frank, basically he came up with the idea for All That Jazz while he was preparing for Chicago. And he, like in, back in 1975 when he was putting Chicago on stage and he mm-hmm. had a heart attack. And he was in hospital and thinking, right. this is the end. And when he didn't die, but... He started thinking about what if I wrote a story, you know, and it was all autobiographical. Um, yeah. But what if I did die? And, and what if I didn't make it out of that hospital? If, right. right. And, and that's how all that jazz came about as a result. And so, and there was an interesting thing, which I guess because look, like you, Frank, I saw all that jazz at a very early age. I saw I, I was fifteen, I think, when it came out, and. I didn't quite get it all at the time, but I just thought it was absolutely marvellous. But years later, when I got around to seeing Chicago, I can't remember if I saw the stage or the film version first, that bit in all that jazz where the character Audrey, his ex-wife, is like on stage with the doctors and saying, and now here's the doctor's diagnosis. And that, yeah. that sort of thing is right out of Chicago. It's Very much so. Right. Very much um, so. I was... I was going to say one thing when you talked about him having a heart attack. There's one shot in the film that I thought was amazing where they're all sitting there doing a read over at the table and all of a sudden everybody's laughing and you don't hear them laughing. Mm. Yeah, he drops all the audio. Right, yeah. he drops all the audio and then he looks at his wife, his ex-wife, and she looks at him and then he snaps the pencil. Right. right. And that's Great. it. It's showtime, folks. Yeah, right. you also talked about the 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 uh, what did you what did you say what did you call it Pur- the purple patch seventies yes. seventies American cinema. Yes, it should be pointed mm-hmm. out that this is one of those films. You know, people talk about like an Easy Riders rating Raging Bulls that book. Yes. Your biscuit book. They talk about the inmates running the asylum and how much wonderful original brave cinema came out of the seventies. This is seventy nine. It's like one. This is one of the last gasps. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. And, uh, Absolutely. Could, could you could you even make this film now? I, mean, oh, I, I suppose that, I suppose no, a director no. that had a lot of clout and and final cut. But it's so much, uh, uh, so much a child of the seventies. Oh, absolutely! And I mean, today, you know, if it was to come out today, somebody would say, "Oh, this guy's just got his head so far up his ass, he disappeared." You know, I mean, it's just—I think it was—it's just—it's a different time, and I think a lot of people would look at this film very differently. And for that time, like I say, like today, everything seems to be meta. You know, it, it's like everything has to be self-referential and everything has to be have the multiple meanings to it or, or, or people just dismiss it immediately. And I think that at the time when it came out, it was something completely unique. A great year for cinema, 79, by the way. I talked about it on the oh, show yeah. with Gilbert. We talked about going in style and we talked about right. time after time. But And those are, you know, poppy films. But but things like Kramer versus Kramer and Apocalypse yeah. Now and, and this. Yeah. I mean, it really was. You go back, Rivals 1939, in a way, as far mm-hmm. as Hollywood is concerned, for just, just a, a spate of great films. 
Gone with the Wind and the Wizard of Oz coming out the same year. Was that that was thirty nine, wasn't it? Thirty nine. Yeah, but dude, dude, when you have a moment, look up, uh, find nineteen seventy nine, the year the year in cinema, and you won't believe how many how many terrific memorable films. Mm. I think Alien Alien came out in seventy nine. Alien is another. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. 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 Um, I wanted to sort of like go just a little bit technical. I indicated at the beginning of the show or the beginning of this discussion that. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Alan Heim. So the the film looks absolutely gorgeous. It's not just a, a, an absorbing story, but it absolutely looks beautiful. And the cinematography was by a fellow called Giuseppe Rotuno, I think. Was that? Yep. Um, and, and, and still with us. Who? Oh wow! You're going to get him on the show. Well, uh, he's still alive, and so is Alan Heim, by the way. Oh man! Well, maybe you should reach out to them, and we could do a part two. So Giuseppe was also known for working with Fellini uh, on films like Amacord and Orchestra Rehearsal, Satyricon, and a film that I only saw like saw for the first time about three or four months ago, but absolutely love called Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow by Vittorio De Sica. Is and, that the Loren one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, shit. yeah, yeah. She is. Uh, she was just such an amazing actress, and uh, like she, every part, every section of that film, it's a trilogy of stories, and she's the range that she had. She plays three completely different characters on the socioeconomic scale, yes, and film. she knocks it out of the park. Absolutely fantastic. The the film was edited, as we've already gone and said, by Alan Heim who was also responsible for Lenny, and also, well, another great film from, uh, I think, was it 76 at Network came out, Frank? I think it was about 76. Yeah. He was, he was responsible for that. And for yeah. a film which, I don't know how much yeah. clad it would hold amongst you guys, but I really have a soft spot for it, called Godspell. I played drums in a production of Godspell, so I'm <laughs> pretty pretty soft for that, uh, for that film. But also, what I wanted to mention was that he did sound editing before he did film editing, and it was for a film that Gilbert recommended a few weeks ago on the uh, Colossal Obsessions, and that was The Porn Broker. Isn't uh, that funny? With Rod Steiger. And I, I have to thank you guys for doing that show and pointing that film my way. Yeah, how just, about the music in that film, by the way? Uh, Quincy Jones. I, mean, I just, yeah. I had to laugh, you know, hearing that. Da, 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 that was, that was, yeah. um, that was amazing. But yeah, no, uh, Quincy Jones jazz score at the start of the film, it just blew me away. And, and this, it was a hard, hard film to watch, but uh, it, it's shot up. I, I think by the end of the year, when I'm sort of like going over my favorite first time watches of the year then that film is it's, it's going to be in the top 10 i absolutely we love have it. another uh, we recommended another uh, sydney lumet film on a on a uh, uh, i think on a show on an episode next week oh, okay all right well, don't that you'll enjoy Sid um, sydney lumet interestingly uh, factors into this because he was one of the people that fossey cast or tried to cast in the john lithgow role Oh wow! Oh, really? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Also, it is. Also, what was it? Uh, my other favorite bit of casting was uh, the dad from Elf. Max. Was, oh, uh, <laughs> Max, Max Wright. <laughs> yeah, that right. guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All the all the sleazy the the producers and the money men. Morris alluded to it before. They're also spot on. It's it's also. You know, it it also has time to become a to to be a savage satire of show business of of uh, right. Film, of filmmaking in the studio system. Well, there's, there's that, well, while Sean says it's right out of the producers, isn't it? Uh, yes, said, yeah. we'd, we'd make We'd make a profit if uh, if we closed on the first night or even if we didn't open at all. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's another, yeah, it's another, uh, he hit, it's another note to hit about about how he hates show business or loves it, as he says, right. he can go either way. But, uh, so, just final, I wanted to say about Alan Heim's work and, I mean, 
part of me sort of thinks that, well, was we always sort of think that the film is both the work of the director, but it's also very much created in the editing suite. And a lot of those cuts between between scenes, and even like there's moments where a line that's referred to in a song, say, and then we get like a quick visual glimpse of Jessica Lang, like if there's an allusion to death and we see her, and then it cuts back to the main action. And that's something that's prevalent in both Lemmy and all that jazz, but yet Alan Holm didn't work on Cabaret. And I confess, I only watched Cabaret for the first time uh, in its entirety. I'd seen a little bit of it before, but I only watched it for the first time uh, maybe about three weeks ago, all the way through, and there were like moments where Joel Grey pops up, like just for a flash of a second in the middle of the scene. So um, I don't well, know. Alan Heim, I, Alan Heim, who again won the Oscar for this, I think has a, uh, gets a lot of credit. And he has a, he has a cameo role in all that. He has that a cameo case. role playing the editor. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about meta, hey, Tim. Scenes where they're cutting Lenny, yeah, where they're cutting the stand up, which was the uh, the stand in title um, for right. Lenny. Right, and, and uh, wasn't, wasn't the, the the actor who played the the Lenny proxy wasn't he originally supposed to do the part that went to Dustin Hoffman? Well, he played Lenny in the play. Okay, with Cliff yeah. Gorman, but I, I I I can only assume that the studio wanted a bankable name and a star to play uh, Lenny, which is why they they went with Dustin Hoffman. But even the character's name is 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 so close to Dustin Hoffman's name. Right. I forget the name. What the, is the character? Newman. Uh, is, Davis, Newman. So, Davis Newman. You can absolutely see why uh, Fosse would attach himself to the biopic of Lenny because, I mean, yeah. they were both, you know, similar creatures of habit. I mean, where they really just couldn't handle the nuances of, of living a life. But when you got them on stage, you know, that was where that was their life. You know, that was that was the place they lived and breathed and bled. But I mean, anywhere outside of that environment that, you know, they just couldn't get a grip on it. Well, well just like the right. Liza Minnelli character in Cabaret, Sally Bowles. Absolutely. Know, she, she Absolutely. Live her life outside of the uh, side of the Kit Kat Club. But there's a running theme through all of it's really interesting. I think there's a running theme through all the Fosse's films that it kind of, you know, really bring that out. I mean, like for example, like you know, even in Star Eighty with Dorothy Stratton where, you know, you know, in front of the camera, that's where, you know, she was meant to be. But anything beyond that it's just it just, you know, was an ultimate uh, tragedy. Well, they're all tragedies. I think he directed five films. Right. I think it's Sweet Charity, Cabaret, Lenny, All That Jazz, and Star 80. And, and though, though All That Jazz has some comedy in it, you could make the argument that they're all tragedies. Mm. And they're all about, right. alluding to what Ma- Morris said before, about, about beauty and ugliness. Right, right. You know? Right. Bye-bye, happiness Hello, loneliness I think I'm gonna die I think I'm gonna die Hello, emptiness. I feel like I could die. About buy your life goodbye. Bye bye, my life goodbye. About buy your life goodbye. Two, three, 
actually, so I wanted to ask you a question, Frank, because you mentioned earlier on that the first time that you saw it, it goes from the end. So like, we get this big razzle-dazzle finale. He's uh, singing with a cast of hundreds on stage. Bye-bye bye life. And really, as a uh, Everly Brothers fan, that was, i got to say, a complete mindfuck to hear that the first time I did. Right. But um, And he, he leaves the stage and he's walking down the corridor finally to be with his bride, the angel of death. And then the next shot is that very stark uh, zipping of the body bag. He's gone. But I personally sort of think that, you know, they, they leave it like for about a second's worth of silence before going into Ethel Merman singing There's No Business Like Show Business. Now, I understand there's, he wanted to have something blackly comic at that point to sort of you know, show the irony. But personally, I, I don't know where you guys stand. Wouldn't you have thought that going completely quiet over the credits would have been the way? Uh, no, yeah, no, I, I like it with the music. It's it's definitely yeah. It's that it's that last little kind of dig, you know. Yep, okay. Right. It's the final knife. Yeah. Sure. And I think there's a there's a polarity, like I was saying earlier, about the duality of what he can manipulate and what he can't. And you know, in the end, he has this whole grandiose image in his mind of how he wants to go out, and and then you see the reality of it with them zipping up the the body bag, and Ethel Merman kicks in, and it's just like the show must go on. You know, there's no business like show business. It's just like you know, you were here and now you're not, and you know, like we're, we, you know, the ball keeps rolling. Yeah, right. I think that's I think that's stated in the film, literally at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, he's dying in the hospital. It's touch and go, and then the money men are meeting, and then uh, the producer Jonesy gets up and he says, "You know, there will be a show," and they're already right. talking to they're already talking to the the Lithgow character, who's sort of an amalgam. Right. Uh, of uh, a composite of a lot of people of, of Fosse's rivals, Mike Nichols being one of them, Hal Prince being another one, people I don't think he liked very much. Hmm. Right. There's the subtleties in it, too, where it's like, you know, where he, um, one of the, the financiers says, wow, you really put a lot of work into this, you know? And Lithgow's just like, well, you know, I just, you know, it's just, and he's like, it's just like, he's like, he's like that dog second in line waiting to get a swipe at the stake, you know, and 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 he's licking his lips and he's just, you know, the vultures are circling overhead and they're looking down on uh, Joe Gideon, you know, and yeah. Joe Gideon, by the way, took the character name from a play written by Patty Chayefsky, who was a friend of his. Play called Gideon that he liked. Just a little trivia. I I imagine that uh, had had he chosen to do it, that Bob Fosse could have actually done a a great job. I mean, not to decry Sidney Lumet, who did a fantastic job, but I would have liked to have seen what Fosse would have done with a film like Network. Or what? Or you were talking about? Uh, Tim was talking about Dennis Potter before. What Fosse would have done with material like The Singing Detective, or 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 even more so, uh, Pennies from Heaven. Right, right, right. Because here again yeah, is yeah. that ju- juxtaposition of the beauty and the escapism of music and dance mm. with. Oh, yeah. what's that couple of one one from the heart? A one from the heart. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then all they're again they're all films of a similar of a similar ilk. You know the the. the you know, playing the darkness, uh, the, the, the escapist of, 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 uh, of Golden Age Hollywood, the escapism of Golden Age Hollywood versus brutal, you know, brutal reality. Right. I mean, and that was, if you look at Fosse's films, I mean, that's kind of his stock and trade. Since we mentioned Alan Hyman, not one nod to to Fosse's co-writer on this, a guy named uh, Robert Allen Arthur, who ironically died in 1978 while they were filming the death scenes. Wow. Yeah. And so that's never heavy. got to see the, uh, never got to see uh, B. Arthur's husband, by the way, which is where she got her, her name. Oh, really? Huh. 
Yep. Robert Allen oh. Arthur, look him up. Huh. And huh. Uh, di died and never got to see uh, the final product. Wow. All right. Um, before we sort of finish up, any final thoughts, um, recommendations, favorite scenes? Wendy, you start. Any any favorite moments or final thoughts? Oh, gosh. So many, so many great moments. Uh, of course, it's funny also not having seen this until last year. Like, I knew vaguely that that Paul Abdul cold-hearted snake video was an homage to this. You know what I'm talking about? I, I don't think I've seen it, no. Oh, yeah, well, she does a whole video that's sort of like an homage to that whole middle dance sequence, you know, and... Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, once again, it's I never really caught a... a cold-hearted snake, do you remember oh, that video? Oh, it's an homage to the er erotica? Yes, yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, well. I have to see it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go, that's what I bring to the table. Paula Abdul references <laughs> <that>. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I love, I love all the, I don't, I don't know, I just, I love a lot of it. It's just so grandiose and it's just, it's just so, like, you could easily say, like, oh, that whole back end is kind of bloated, maybe they could have cut out one or two of those numbers, but you really can't lose a thing. You can't lose a single moment of this movie. Right? They all work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're sitting, they, they, yeah, the thought does occur to you, does every one of these numbers have to be in here? And But they, each one tops the previous one, and, and a nod to Ben Vereen, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And also the sheer, oh my gosh, the sheer physicality of uh, the, the woman who played his first wife. Uh, like yeah, in that oh. one scene where he's talking to her, and he's having that dialogue with her, and she's still rehearsing this, this piece. Right. And I mean, it's she doesn't miss a beat. Like she's still, she's just doing all this stuff and still having this whole conversation, a serious conversation. Uh, it was, it's just amazing how how much the the music and the dancing moved the momentum of everything. Yeah, I have to say one thing, Morris, if I can, on a personal yeah. note. You asked me about a favorite scene. Yeah, sure. J just want to go back to the, the the body bag, and 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 Ethel Merman. Uh, I was 18 when I saw it. It hit me. There was something in me, even as a kid, even as a teen, where the darkness of that really appealed to me. I wasn't in show business. I didn't really break into the business till I was 22, 23. You know, and I've had a very checkered career. I, you know, nothing, nothing approaching fame, but I've been lucky enough to make a living mm -hmm. as a comedy writer. And you know that that now, after 20 something years in the business, even before I went and rewatched this. I said to my therapist the other day, I said, I, I, said, I, I have a love-hate affair with, with show business. I said, sometimes I feel like a battered spouse, huh. you know, uh, because, there, the, because there is an unrequited love. It, for me, anyway, it, it never loved me back uh, quite, quite right. the way I loved it. And even though I've been very lucky and I've had some successes, small successes, I've written some award shows and some roasts and I've done a little bit of this and a little bit of that, I understand the anger I, and, I, and I understand now the helplessness of I hate it, I love it. You know, that, that last moment now when, the, when, the, when he dies and the, and the zipper comes out and the body bag comes out and the music comes out, it really, really resonates with me now. Wow! <laughs> giving after right. giving the best years of my life to a business that will that will test your uh, your character, to put it mildly. Now the film uh, is is almost in no way am I comparing myself to, to to an icon like Bob Fosse. I'm simply as a as a traveler, as, a, as maybe a fellow traveler, or as somebody who is who has devoted so much of his life to this, to 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 the business, hmm. to the love of this. That really, that really uh, uh, hits me on a gut level. It's harder to watch than ever. 
Amazing. Right. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Okay, an amazing thought. I mean, because I guess someone who isn't in the business. I mean, I, I appreciate. I'm looking. I'm stepping back. And yeah, you know, we hear all these things about show business people being stomped over by other people, and it's it's more. I'm looking at it more objectively. So uh, it, it's interesting to hear that it's you find some level of pain watching this and just sort of finding some empathy. I hope you don't find me that or that it was, you know, if it was too, I hope it wasn't too personal. No, 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 not at all. No, no, no. Please, please. As, as, as somebody who has probably experienced 80%, 85% rejection to about 15% success, uh, um, uh, in the business, I, and I now I've been. I say to my wife all the time. I say, you know, half jokingly, I say this business is going to kill me. There, there are days when I really think that. You there, didn't there, say that there, to her last night while watching the film, did you? No, but I, I, you know, the reason the reason I've been in therapy for I had a good childhood, and uh, you know, I have a good relationship with my wife. The reason I've been in therapy for twenty six years is show business is is, is because <laughs> because it will kill you. It is, you know, it, the 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 rejection of it and the the the. Uh, the cruelty of it and the unfairness of it will take its toll on people who don't actually, in my opinion, who, do, who don't actually go and do the work. When I see a film about the dark side of the business, a film that's done effectively like this, it really, really resonates. I, 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 I understand, if I dare may say, I understand the love-hate dynamic. What you were just talking about, Frank, it just kind of reminds me of... Uh the lyric Pink Floyd song, "Welcome, my son, welcome to the machine." To the machine, you know, sure. You know, and it's just that kind of. To me, with the with the zipper goes up, it's kind of like, and that's a wrap, you know. Yeah. And it's it, it, you can almost hear the slate, you know, when 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 that zipper goes up, you can almost hear the slate, and then and then it's just like when Ethel Merman kicks on, it's just like you know, onto the next phase, onto the next project or whatever. It just you know, it doesn't stop. But I was going to say the one thing that I noticed in this film that it always kind of sticks out for me is, you know, in this day and age of political correctness, you can barely show anyone smoking a cigarette anymore on on, on screen. And, you know, in this film, I had to laugh because there's the bit when Scheider goes into the shower with a cigarette hanging in his mouth. <laughs> Well, it was surgically implanted there, wasn't it? Yeah. Can you imagine right, you having to be a dancer and rehearsing all the time and that smoky... Like, that must have been really disgusting. <laughs> There's a great photo right, in, right, the, right. in the Wasson right, book right. of him smoking underneath a no-smoking sign. But, you know, one could make the argument, what killed him? You know, he, wow. died, at 60, wow. he died at 60. Right. Did he die from, did he die from his personal right. excesses, like having a bad ticker, you know, the bad luck of having a bad ticker and speed? and the booze, and the cigarettes, or did he die from obsession? Did he die from overworking himself? One is the result of the other, possibly. Yeah. I read something somewhere, someone had written that, you know, Fosse, you know, in presenting himself as Joe Gideon, he is the cigarette, because he's burning down. And, and he's he just burning himself down, and it's always sticking in his mouth. It's like, like you know, an appendage. You know, and it's it's just part of who he is. And the last thing I just wanted to say about this film is, if you've ever if you ever wondered about you know watching this or sitting down with it, and had any hesitation, I'd say by all means, this is a film that must be seen by anyone who can appreciate film. I mean, right. you know, even if you're not into dance, even if you're not into musicals, there's so much more to this film that it, it's so rich and there's just so much more to dig into on a cerebral level, on a 
spiritual level, like an emotional level. Like there's just so much into this film that really hits you straight between the eyes. And, and I mean, I would argue that so, this is a film you need to see more than once. You watch it. I was the first thinking time. the same thing. It works you're, you're, on so many levels. Yeah, you're, yeah. You'll watch it the first time just to take it on board and you'll know that you've watched something special but you're not quite sure why and you'll want to go watch it again so be yeah be prepared to watch it lots of times right right, right. all right uh look i think we've had a uh, really terrific conversation I've, I've hugely enjoyed uh doing this episode mind you i enjoyed doing all the episodes but thank you so much frank for uh being being our bernard stickwell for this episode <laughs> Nobody is Bernie. Oh, that's true. I don't, no. think, I don't even know who Bernie is, and I'm uh, sure I didn't fill his shoes. Uh, look, you know, <laughs> sorry, no, you, you, are, you are Frank, but Bernie will come back next month, and I'll just give you a quick rundown next month. Uh, we, we have another special guest because Tim will not be with us next month. He's going off to, right. uh, go, going off to Canada. Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> next month we will be having uh, the return of uh, Hank Hellman, who uh, I think this will be his third time on the podcast, and actually probably be the first time that uh, Hank and Wendy will be online together. So you know that'll be a, that'll be a nice thing. But uh, we, so we have Hank, but we don't have Tim. But we'll also have Bernie back. And uh, given that Hank had come on the last couple of times, I think pretty much in the last minute. So I said to him, right, we're giving you an invite up front, and it's your choice. So he's gone and picked a film from 2005, Hustle and Flow. And this is going to be, uh, I dare say, a very different film for me, I must say. But um, I'm looking forward to uh, having a watch and having a discussion with uh, with you, my fellow Seherians. Uh, so, um, look, I think, uh, final thing, yes, uh, if you wish to send us an email and let us know that you want Frank uh, reinstigated as a permanent member of the See Here team. You can write to us at uh, seeherepodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook page. Just look for See Here, that's S W H E A R. And you can find us on, uh, you can find the show at seehere.podbean.com or you can download through iTunes. So I think that's all the housekeeping stuff. Uh, so once again, thank you so much, Frank, for uh, uh, joining us for this episode. Oh, it's my pleasure, Morris. Really, and Tim and and Wendy, thank all of you, and 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 thank you again on behalf of Gilbert and myself for being so kind and saying such nice things about the show. Well, we're all fans. well. Thank him for us too for uh, lending him out. I shall. <laughs> One last no, thing I want you. to throw in: it, it's not a musical film, but Blake Edwards' S.O.B. If, oh uh, yeah. Talking about and not as not entirely as successful as this film, not as sure-handed as this film. But if you if you uh, and it, maybe it's not right for the podcast because it's not really musical. But if, if you have a if you have a taste for for uh, for satires of show business, and you get to see Mary Poppins lifted in her shirt famously, <laughs> yeah, that was the only thing that the newspapers could talk about when uh, when the film was released here. So yeah, it's another one of the. It's a film that just was too dark. For people's taste, right. but it's but like like all that jazz, it's a it's a you know it's a poison pen letter. Mm. Oh to, yeah, uh, oh yeah. To show business and particularly the movies. Right. Yeah. All right. We'll um. Anyway, we'll see you all next month on See Here, and until then, please let your friends know that we exist because we'd like you know more than two or three listeners, uh, and be nice to each other. Watch some great films. Listen to some great music. And we'll see you next month on See Here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, guys.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.